our mission here at the Bridge Church is to develop fully devoted followers of Christ in a multi-ethnic context. Being fully devoted means that every area of life is devoted to God. Every area of our life, we surrender to Jesus Christ. Every part of who we are is dedicated to the cause of Christ. Well, one of the areas that we don't like to be confronted about is our money. And so this morning, by way of introduction, let's just, let me put my cards all out on the table. We're talking about your pocketbook. Why? Preacher, is this really necessary for us to talk about our money and our possessions? Is it really necessary? Is this just a ploy to raise more money so that we can pay more staff or do more for buildings or do all these other things? Beloved, I'm convinced that if we don't equip you to have the right attitude and actions towards money, then we are unfaithful as shepherds. If we don't equip you to have the right attitude towards wealth, money, and possessions, we cannot develop you to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. That's not my opinion. I think I've got some data to back me up. Of the words that we have recorded in the Gospels that were said by Jesus Christ, 15% of what he talks about is about money and possessions. Beloved, that's more than heaven and hell combined. 15% is about money. That's more than what he says on prayer. It's more than what he says even on one of his favorite topics, faith. If I were to preach as much about money, as much as Jesus talked about money, out of the 52 Sundays in a year, that means I would have to preach almost eight times a year on money. And here I haven't preached a sermon dedicated to money in two years, so y'all owe me 16. So I'm going to take a risk and tell you, we're talking about money next week too. Question, why would Jesus talk about money so much? Because money, wealth, and possessions reveal our heart. Here's what Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Treasure reveal, reveals heart. 
Jesus knew that one of our greatest temptations would be around money. That's why the Apostle Paul said that the love of money is the root of all evil. Jesus was always teaching or consistently teaching his disciples about the right attitude and action towards money because he would say things like this, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where, where moths destroy and thieves steal it, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where rust and moth cannot destroy it and thieves cannot get to it. Jesus would teach his disciples things like this. You cannot love God and money for you will love the one and hate the other. Jesus was consistently teaching about money. And now y'all look at me sideways when I say, okay, I'm going to be like Jesus and teach on money. See, y'all good with me being like Jesus until I come for your pocketbook. Maybe that ex explains or reveals an attachment of our heart. Now, now, let me be very clear. The church has earned its reputation as far as people being sour on the pulpit and money. Because there's been some preaching prostitutes in the pulpit. They've used the pulpit to try to pull money out of y'all for their own benefit. When you are buying $25 million jets that the people are funding, there's a problem. When you promise people that if you give, then I'm going to give you a blessing cloth. When that cloth came, same out the, came from the same manufacturer as my bath cloth. There is a problem. We, we have earned a bad reputation. And so all I'm going to ask you this morning is to just give me the benefit of the doubt until the end of the sermon. Here's what I care about more than anything. This is not about filling the coffers of the church bank account. Listen, I, everything, I believe what we just saying, he made a way. And guess what? Here's the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. Y'all going to be mad, but I, I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. He's making a way despite some of our unfaithfulness in this area. Bills are getting paid. There's, there's some uh, surplus in the bank account despite the unfaithfulness of God's people that call themselves the British church. So he's going to make a way whether you get mad or not or whether I preach it or not. Because what have I always told y'all that the Lord told me as I was going south on Oliver, you preach the gospel, I'll take care of the rest. He's a promise keeper and that's what he's done these almost six years is I've tried to be faithful to proclaim the gospel and he's taking care of the rest. He sent us a few people. They're on the live stream too. He gave us a building. He's put money into the account. People have come to faith as was on the bridge church. People are being transformed. And it's not by my power. I'm not that gifted. I'm not that talented. It was nobody but the Lord. He has made a way. I'm already off my manuscript. We ain't even got to the text. <laughs> Beloved, stewardship of our money is a matter of discipleship. 
Our approach to money and possessions is central to our spiritual lives. So this morning we start in the Old Testament book of Malachi. Let's go there. Malachi chapter number three. If you can find Matthew, then you can find Malachi. Matthew, then go before, right before that to Malachi. Verse number three. And for those of you who are already getting nervous about what I'm going to say, hold on. Malachi chapter number three beginning with verse number six. Let's stand in honor and reverence to God's holy word. Malachi chapter number three, beginning with verse number six. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children, or Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Here's God's answer. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? God says in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I would not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The word of the Lord. <laughs> Let's see if y'all are really thankful. <laughs> Our passage this morning begins, first of all, with a call to repent. Look with me, first of all, at the call to repent. Why, though, is there this call to repent? Look at the reason in verses 6 through 7. Our text begins with the conjunction for in verse 6. And whenever you see the word for, you need to go back and see what it's there. Oh, thank you. Help me preach. Beginning with chapter 2, verse 17, the people of God accuse their God of loving evil and, and delighting in evil. Let me say that again. I know you can't believe it. The people accuse God of loving and delighting in evil and hating good. And before God refutes their accusations, he says, I'm going to send my messenger to prepare the way before me. Just cutting across the field, that's John the Baptist. Then he says, I'm going to send another messenger who is going to purify you like a refiner's fire. Remember, this is Malachi, so we're getting ready for the New Testament. That's referring to Christ. Then in verse 5, 
He says, judgment is coming against all kinds of evildoers. And then finally in verse 6, God begins here. He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. God is now responding to their accusation that he loves evil and hates good. And that he's not a just God. And God says, I haven't changed at all. I still hate evil. And I'm still a God of justice. This idea of the unchangeableness of God is is a doctrine that theologians call the immutability of God. That means that God is unchanging in his being, his character, his nature, his attributes, his purposes, his plans, and his promises. This, beloved, is a critical doctrine for believers. For if God changes, then our whole faith falls apart because our faith and hope is in a person. So God tells them that it's because of his unchangeableness that they are not consumed. It's because he is a a God that doesn't change that they haven't perished. It's because God is committed to his covenant promises that he hasn't poured out his full wrath against them. It's because he's a God of grace and mercy that he had not already rendered judgment on them. Then in verse 7, we get to the actual reason for the call to repent. Here's what he says about them. He says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. That word turned aside, one word in the Hebrew, it means to change direction, to go off, to deviate. Look, look at what's happening in the text. In chapter 2, verse 17, they accuse God of changing. And God says, no, I, I haven't changed. Actually, you've changed. You've been unfaithful to our covenant. You've been disobedient. Beloved, I think there's a little principle in here as we get to the heart of the message. Whenever there's a change in your relationship with God, it's because you changed and God didn't. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So because they've changed and they've been unfaithful, he gives them the reason. Then then he gives them the remedy in verse 7. He says... Easily, return. A call to repent. It means to turn from one thing and turn to another. He's calling his people to turn from their disobedient ways and turn back to obedience. And God promises them, he says, if you return to me, I'll return to you. God wants his people back, but he's not going to force them back. You see, beloved, there is a blessing in repentance. These were God's covenant people. He made made promises to them that they would only be able to enjoy because of their obedience. And God here offers them the opportunity for him to reinstate their covenant blessings if they will turn back to him in obedience. That's the call to repent. 
then he gets very specific in the charges rendered against his people, beginning in verses 8 and 9. The charges rendered. Look, look at the violation in verse number 8. God now takes on the role of a prosecutor. He brings charges against his own people. Now, let's, be, let's just be honest with one another. God could have brought any number of sins against them. They were bringing lame and blind animals to sacrifice. They were divorcing their wives for no reason. In, in chapter 3, verse 5, they are guilty of lying, unfair wages, oppressing the immigrant, adultery. But of all the violations that he brings up to his people, he says, I want to highlight one in particular. You're giving. He says in verse number eight, you are guilty of robbery. Look, look, verse eight. Here's what he asks. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? The charges against his people have to do with their wealth, their possessions. God essentially says to his people, you are defrauding me of what's rightfully mine. How is it rightfully yours, God? Well, first of all, Psalm 24 says, verse 1 says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. That means God is the owner of everything. He owns the people, the planet, and all the possessions. Rewind. Press play. God is the owner of everything. Y'all ain't getting it. God is the owner of everything. That means if he owns everything, you own nothing. I don't care whose name is on the deed. I don't care whose name is on the title. I don't care who gave birth to them. God is the owner of everything. I don't care whose names are on the elder board. God is the owner of everything. And our problem is we act like we own what we got. Leviticus chapter 27 verse 30, God specifically says this about the tithe. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. That means it is set apart for him. And God says, it belongs to me and you're keeping it to yourselves. That's robbery. I want you to get how awful this is. I messed up one time a few years ago, and I said, we're all thieves because we steal from the Lord. And some woman from my church, she said, no, we're not thieves. The Bible says we're robbers. She said, she said, you see, a thief is sneaky. They come in when you're not at home 
or they don't want to come in where, where they can be seen. That's a thief. But a robber is much more bold. They come up to your face and say, give me your stuff. And God's people here are charged of going to God's face and saying, God, this mine, I'm going to do what I want to do with it, how I want to do, when I want to, what you're going to do. He says, y'all are robbing me. And out of all the sins that they committed, he chooses to bring up how they worship him through tithes and offerings. Why? Because how they gave was an indicator of their spiritual, here it is, Maturity. Now, 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 here, here's what I'm Don't think that if you give more, then that means you are spiritual, that you are spiritually mature. That actually might reveal your immaturity. See, remember, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a matter of the heart. If we were saying this in the negative, what they were not giving was an indicator of their spiritual regression. Now, somebody has turned me off. I hope not literally. Because we specifically have mentioned that word, tithe. And let me deal with this word tithe and this idea of tithing for a moment. Some don't like this idea of tithing, giving a tenth of one's increase. Because here's one argument. Some argue that tithing is legalistic. In other words, legalism is, means that you are following a set of rules to earn God's favor and blessing. And to that argument, I think it's partially true. Tithing can be legalistic. However, so can prayer. Prayer can be legalistic. Reading scripture can be legalistic. Attending worship gatherings can be legalistic, meaning that we do those things to earn God's favor. Now, let's just talk about prayer and Bible reading because we all like this idea of quiet time. You wouldn't tell somebody to stop doing those things if they were being legalistic. You would tell them to change their mind, their attitude, their heart on the matter. Same thing with tithing. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You're saying, okay, okay, okay. But here's what you... <laughs> these biblical scholars will say, here's another argument. Tithing is not commanded in the New Testament. And to that I say, amen. <laughs> However, <laughs> let me be clear. If you're going to use an argument from silence, meaning that you're going to argue that it's not commanded in the New Testament, then the opposite argument must be true too. That the New Testament never commands us not to tithe as well. Oh, I came ready this morning. Yeah, yeah, y'all came for me. And y'all gonna know, don't come for me unless I send for you. A case, church, could be made that the New Testament somewhat affirms tithing in a sense. <laughs> Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. 
Here's what the Lord Jesus says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, referring to tithing, without neglecting the others. Jesus makes it clear. He says, y'all should have tithed. But don't neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness as well. This tithing is also mentioned in Hebrews chapter 7. Here's another argument people talk about when they say tithing, when they don't want to tithe. The New Testament church is not obligated to tithe. We should practice grace giving. (laughs) I like that. Hallelujah. Y'all want a grace give? Let's do it. Now, we're going to come back to grace giving next week. I agree that we ought to practice grace giving. However, my question for the audience is, when did grace ever lower our responsibility to God? Go back and read the Sermon on the Mount, and you tell me if Jesus ever lowered the bar in the name of grace. Jesus said, murder? Mm-mm-mm. I, I, what we need to worry about is anger. Look, adultery and all this other kind of sexual sins. No, 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 no. Let's, let's go to lust. He raised the bar in the name of grace. But I do agree, agree that we ought to be uh, experiencing or practicing grace giving. What is grace giving? I think all we have to do is look to God to see what grace giving actually is. Because the last time I checked my Bible, grace giving cost God his own son. So that you could be saved by grace through faith. God's grace led to his son being nailed to a cross. God's grace led to his son having a crown of thorns put on his head. God's grace led to Christ being pierced in his side. God's grace led to his son actually dying on the cross. God's grace led to him being buried in a borrowed tomb. God's grace led to his son not staying there, but right early Sunday morning, he got up with all power in his hands. That's God's grace. And so if God, if we are to imitate our father as his children, then grace giving doesn't say you give less. Grace giving means I give more. Grace requires sacrifice. And so to all these arguments, I will say I don't think the New Testament, New Covenant believer is obligated by way of law and command to tithe. I want you to hear that clearly. Did y'all just hear what I said? Some of y'all ought to be running around this place right now. Y'all say y'all like Pentecostal Bridge? Here's your opportunity. I just said you don't have to tithe. Y'all know it's a setup though, don't you? Good, I'm glad you know. What we've done is, even for those people who practice tithing, the problem with some of us is that we've made tithing the ceiling rather than the floor. Let me see. It's track season. 
We've made tithing the finish line when tithing really is the starting block. Tithing is the start, not the... Lily, Lily, bless her heart. She did not want to go to nursery this morning. Her bad. <laughs> she has a bike now. And those bikes, that, that bike, she couldn't just get on the bike and just start pedaling and going. No, 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 no. That, the, this bike, she ha- had to have what we call training wheels. And those training wheels will allow her to learn how to ride a bike without her always falling over and getting hurt. Tithing is the training wheels of giving. Tithing is what gets us on the process to becoming generous givers. Now, so let me make it clear. I don't want to bind your conscience to saying you have to tithe. What I'm saying is that I think there's a biblical principle now for new covenant believers that tithing is the starting point, the entry ramp. To generous giving. That was their violation. And here was the verdict. Now God moves from being the prosecutor to that of a judge. Verse 9. He says, you are cursed with a curse. Beloved, there are consequences to robbing God. There's always a consequence to to sin. Sin is not free. Sin always costs us something. And God had already told his people about blessings and curses tied to the covenant back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Because they refused to obey this, uh, refused to obey God, they were now living under a curse. They chose to disobey. They chose to live under a curse. They chose disobey. I said they chose to live under a curse. It was self-destructive behavior. And beloved, that's what sin is. Self-destructive behavior. Not being a generous giver is self-destructive. Let's move on. Let's look thoroughly at the change required of God's people beginning in verse 10. Here's the command beginning uh, the, the A clause of verse 10. He says, here's the simple fix. This is easy. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. That's the command. That's the fix. Start giving to God what is rightly his. Notice, notice something here in the text. Notice something. This is just simple observation skills. The text never says that they were not tithing at all. Though that was a likely case for some. The issue is that they were not bringing the full tithe. What's your point, preacher? The amount does matter. I was, (laughs) I decided to wade into the deep, treacherous waters of a Facebook debate. (laughs) You already know. And someone, they were talking about giving, and someone said that the amount doesn't matter. God knows your heart. Loaded, aim, beloved. 
God does know your heart. And he knows that people who are stingy have a heart of robbing him. Now, now you want to know what's the amount then, preacher, that I'm supposed to give. Here, here's the answer. Pray. We'll get to it next week. Paul is going to tell us how we should give and how much we should give. And what I'm trying to push us toward, let me be very clear once again, what I'm trying to push us toward as far as discipleship is us being generous givers, having a changed heart concerning treasure. That's what I'm pushing us toward. I'm not necessarily saying you have to tithe to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. I do think that, as I said, that that's the training wheels of generous giving. So Paul is going to tell us next week, you, you give in proportion to how God has blessed you. And so what is that amount? You better pray. The other question that normally comes up about the amount, they say, Pastor, do I have to give off the tithe or, or the net? I mean, give off the gross or the net? And I say, yeah. <laughs> Y'all crazy. So I answer this a couple of ways. The good pastoral answer is Proverbs chapter 3, I believe verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your substance, the first fruits of your offering. First fruits. First fruits. First fruits. You interpret that how you may, but that's what the text says. First fruits. Not the leftover fruits. The first fruits. That's my pastoral answer. Then my uh, ungracious response is, do you want a gross blessing or a net blessing? Moving on. <laughs> he moves now from the command to the challenge. Ver calls B of verse 10. God says this. This is the only time God says this. He says, put me to the test. Here's how I learned it back in King James Version. Try me. <laughs> God like, you gonna rob me? Try me. What? I love it. I love it. I'm from the hood. I'm sorry, I guess. <laughs> That's just how I picture God saying, try me. Try me. You know, only other time I say that is to Lily when she gets on my nerve. Try me. <laughs> and see why I open wide. <laughs> Never mind, y'all don't get that. <clears throat> he says, try me. I can back mine up. Test me, he says, and see, won't I open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Look, look, look at what the Lord says. Now I'm going to get Pentecostal on y'all. He says, I will open up the windows. This means two things. One is that when we are stingy, we live under a closed heaven. Here's the other thing. This is the shout. This is the one where y'all shout. God says, I'll open up the windows of heaven. This is the same phrase that's used in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, when God flooded the earth. 
The text says that on that day, the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened. God says to his people, help me Holy Ghost, that when you give and you give right, what, when you give me what's mine, he says I'll open up the windows of heaven or, or, or in other language, I will flood you with blessings. He says that you won't have room to receive it. Your cup, well, I should have brought my cup up here. You will be running over with blessings. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Pastor, you starting to sound like prosperity gospel, like some of these prosperity preachers. No, that's just the Bible. But watch this. When God says, I'll open up the windows of heaven and pour you out blessings that you won't have room to receive, the problem is that we think blessings automatically equal material wealth. Sometimes God says, when you are faithful, that's what this is about, faithfulness, been a faithful steward, faithful. Because when we say him, he's not going to say, well done, thy good and big giver. He's going to say, well done, thy good and. Help me preach this thing. That's what this is all about, being a faithful steward of God, what God owns. He says, I'll open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that you won't have room to receive. And sometimes that blessing may be that even if you get Rona, you won't die from it. I'm going to honor your faithfulness and that I'm going to prevent sickness from you. For some, it may be that the blessing is you'll be able to afford your house. For some, it's going to mean that you have a good relationship with your children. For others, it means that you're going to have a good relationship with your friends and not always be bickering. God gets to decide how he wants to bless you. God says, try me. See why I won't open up the windows of heaven, pour you out a blessing that you won't have room to receive. And then finally, he says, if you try me, I'm going to remove the curse. That's my fourth point. The curse will be removed. God says, I will rebuke the devourer on your behalf. Now, the devourer is referring to a pest that would eat up their crops. And God says, I'm going to keep that pest away from your fruit, from your crops. And beloved, here's the hard truth. Some of us are struggling financially right now because God hasn't held back the devourer from our resources. When you are not generous with God, the devourer has free reign in all of your resources. Let's get out of here. What's the application? What are we to do as a result of this word? First of all, turn. That's what the Lord says. Repent. Turn. Part of repentance is acknowledging and confessing. Acknowledging that you've laid up treasure on earth rather than treasure in heaven. Turn. Turn to him by faith. Giving, beloved, is a matter of faith. Do you trust God enough to take care of you? Number two, give. But pastor, you just don't understand. I can't afford to give. 
And beloved, I say this from the bottom of my heart, with the most love that I can extend this to you. You can't afford not to give. Give generously. The consequences are too great for stinginess. Three, I want to challenge you with how God challenges you. Test. Try him. God says, put me to the test. So that's another way. Somebody, you just need to try God in this area of giving. And see, won't he take care of you? Worship team, you can come back. If my, the old saints would say this to you, I know the Lord will make a way. Yes, he will. Some, some, some of you are saying, really, let me go back to this idea of I can't afford to give, Pastor. Not only can you not afford to not give, but maybe you can't afford to give generously to the kingdom of God because too much of your treasure is invested in earthly things. For so many people in the church, the American dream has become an American nightmare. You want to keep up with the Joneses, which there are no Joneses in our church, by the way. So I don't know who y'all keeping up with. But you think you got to have a certain house, a certain type of car, all these things. And you're putting all your, what God has blessed you with, you're putting in all these things that don't have eternal value. And so to those who says, Pastor, I can't afford to give, maybe, just maybe the challenge is, maybe you are outliving your means. Maybe you need to downsize on your house. Maybe you need to trade in your vehicle. Maybe you need to put your kids in heathen high. Father, thank you so much for your word. This topic is never easy to preach, nor is it easy to hear. But God, you have called us as disciples of Christ to be generous with what you have blessed us with as a way of acknowledging our devotion to you, our adoration towards you. And it's one way that we give you glory. God, Satan is going to try to come in now and try our hearts and give us wrong interpretations of what was trying to be said this morning. So God, we just pray that you would protect us from the evil one. We pray, God, that every individual would examine their hearts on money, wealth, and possessions even those, especially those who think they are doing it. Help us, God, to examine our motives, our heart, 
our lifestyles. Let us do this as an act of worship towards you. God, for that person who is in this room or on this stream, who needs to experience your grace, show them clearly how much you have given so that they can be forgiven. In the matchless, marvelous, majestic name of Jesus, we pray and ask these things. Amen. Let's stand and sing to this gracious God.